Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Lillian Sue, and I'm the medical director of the CVICU at Phoenix Children's. Today, we will be speaking about all things ECMO with our special guest, Dr. Heidi Dalton. Dr. Dalton is the director of ECLS research at Inova Medical Center and also professor of clinical surgery at George Washington University. She is also former past president of ELSO, as well as the former chief of critical care at both Children's National Medical Center, as well as Phoenix Children's. Welcome, Dr. Dalton, and thank you so much for joining us. So thanks very much for inviting me and for that nice introduction. Uh, In the spirit of transparency, uh, let me also mention that uh, I am an advisor to uh, Integrion, who makes a point-of-care thromboelastograph-type device, uh, as well as uh, uh, Medtronic uh, and Instrumentation Labs. I also am the medical director for Innovative ECMO uh, Concept as a consultant. And then I have a consulting business of my own, as well as a new company called ECLS Virtual Advisors uh, that I also am a founder of. Thank you for being so transparent about your industry connections. I do think it is difficult in a field such as ECMO, which does rely on industry to help advance the field forward, that we have experts like you not have industry affiliations. I think the important part is for the audience to understand what those affiliations are and how a conflict might arise. I think it's important for the audience to also know that PCICS does not endorse any of these companies or products and that this is really just for educational purposes. It's also important to understand that many of the uses of any of these products in pediatrics is off-label. I wanted to kind of take you back to the beginning of your career because as listeners of the PCICS podcast, there are going to be some people who are relatively new in their careers and or relatively new to ECMO. So if you could just take us back to the time where you were first intrigued by ECMO and what it was about ECMO that made you dedicate essentially a lifetime career to it. Uh, Okay, so I guess we have to go back just a few years then. So uh, I guess to be complete, I should say that when I got out of high school, actually, I worked for many years as a ward clerk in a neonatal ICU in Lansing, Michigan, while I was going to college. And so I paid for college. Uh, and uh, the nurses there who were all a little bit older than this, you know, 18 year old kid uh, said, no, you know, you should go to medical school and uh, we want you to do it and blah, blah, blah. So that's how I actually started going into applying for medical school, which I'd never thought of before because I always fainted when I saw blood. Uh, But um, anyway, uh, eventually I got into medical school and I always knew that I wanted to do intensive care in some fashion. And I like doing procedures and I'm very good in my hands. I used to, you know, tune up my car and change the brakes and all that stuff back in the days when you could do that. So when I first did my rotation in a neonatal ICU, in DC Children's actually where I did my residency, uh, I was attracted to it because it was, you know, very high tech type of medicine back then. It was very equipment oriented and mechanical and you got to do things with your hands. And actually to help make money, uh, I was a moonlighter as an ECMO specialist for many years throughout my uh, residency. 
And so I learned about everything from how the pump was put together and how to prime the pump and troubleshooting. And this is back in the days of roller pumps and silicone membrane lungs and such. So by the time I got through my residency and then my fellowship in Pittsburgh, I mean, in Pittsburgh, people thought I was the ECMO doctor because I always was invested in those uh, patients. And that has sort of um, continued throughout my career to where I have helped multiple centers, multiple companies, et cetera, sort of advance uh, extracorporeal life support. And my particular area of research interest is in anticoagulation and getting us to a point where we don't need to use it uh, for ECMO, which would certainly make it simpler and uh, more widely available for everybody. So talking uh, and touching upon anticoagulation, that's usually the bane of everybody's existence in ECMO. And I wanted to hear from you what you feel like are the latest advancements in that field and or things that maybe we can give our audience some hope that maybe there is a better way or a brighter future in anticoagulation. So uh, I think there are two sides to that. The depressing side is that there is more and more data coming out that all of the tests that we do to monitor anticoagulation, whether it's the APTT or the anti-10A or the ACT or whatever it is that you happen to use, when it's looked at carefully and actually correlated with observed bleeding and thrombosis in ECMO patients, and this is you know, definitely true in the pediatric and neonatal uh, groups, there really seems to be no association. And certainly I think the best recent article about that is the one from Boston Children's where they looked at uh, their neonatal and pediatric um, non-cardiac population and found lo and behold, when they looked at all these things, there was no association with bleeding and thrombosis. And actually there was no association with heparin dosing, heparin being the medication that most people still use and observed bleeding and thrombosis either. And that's been replicated in several other studies as well. So I think depressingly, we drain all this blood out of kids, we spend all this money doing lab tests, and yet, uh, really, it hasn't really uh, resolved the issues of uh, bleeding, at least, uh, or preventing thrombosis in ECMO patients either. So people are always looking for the silver bullet, and so the silver bullets that people have been looking at have been uh, some related to technology, you know, there are codings for every single system that are out there that are supposed to help in terms of being uh, not so biologically activating and to be not to be so thrombogenetic, generic, whatever. Um, but also, I think people are also starting to look at different places in the coagulation cascade. So I'm involved in two different things. One, um, I'm working with some folks uh, about uh, looking at factor 11 and factor 12, which work at the contact activation way up in the coagulation cascade. And uh, I'm working with a small uh, company in Oregon, actually called Aranora, who has uh, developed inhibitors to factor 11 and factor 12. And the reason that's important is that people that have factor 11 and factor 12 deficiencies um, uh, do not... Uh, thrombose, but they don't have an increase in bleeding time either. So if you can imagine, if you could figure out how to block factor 11 and factor 12 and not increase bleeding time, you might then be able to, let's say, 
uh, you know, give a shot of this stuff before you even cannulate uh, and then not have to worry about doing systemic anticoagulation for some period of time. And they have dose response uh, studies in healthy people uh, that giving this stuff at um, different doses increases your APTT for up to a couple of weeks even. And they also have some evidence that uh, for patients who are receiving dialysis, it prevents clotting in the dialysis circuit. And then there was one baboon study where they also found uh, that when we put a oxygenator in this uh, AV shunt, they have a chronic AV shunt baboon model, that uh, platelet activation, fibrin deposition, and all that stuff was uh, delayed uh, in the oxygenator. So I think that is one potential new thing that's coming down the pike. The other thing that I uh, have been working on is a better way to follow anticoagulation. And so, you know, over the past few years, since all the other tests have not turned out to be that great, there's been an increase in the uh, interest in using viscoelastic testing. And most of the viscoelastic testing that we do requires sending blood to the lab in a special tube. Sometimes it has to be pipetted, things have to be added to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm working with a company called Integrion. They make a point of care bedside tag uh, type device called the VCM uh, that takes three drops of blood. It gives you the same picture uh, as a regular uh, viscoelastic device uh, would have. And what we're trying to see is if that provides better uh, indication of your, your clotting time, your potential, your platelet function, the strength of your clot, et cetera. Uh, and it's real time at the bedside, whole blood, no pipetting and all that. And if that turns out to be useful, I think that will be another area that may be helpful. And then technology is also an important thing. So lots of, uh, you know, companies now are trying to look at different ways to prevent uh, platelet activation and clotting when the blood hits the uh, plastic of the uh, ECMO circuit. And I think there is some advantage to doing that, especially with the miniaturized circuits uh, that we now have available so that at least the surface area for activation is reduced. I think it's really interesting how much you have had industry cooperation in advancing some of the science of ECMO. And I think we should just be transparent about how much industry is needed in a field like ECMO to advance the field. And I know that it can be controversial when you're talking on a more academic podcast like PCACS, but what would you say is the necessary or relationship of industry to a field like ECMO? And what is the role of government funding like the NIH and what government funding is most likely to fund things like ec within the space of ECMO? So uh, let's see. So I'd say, you know, uh, for an industry like ECMO, you will never really be able to advance without industry. And I think, you know, industry sort of got a bad name when, you know, doctors were, you know, taking boat trips and these expensive vacations and having their cars bought by industry. So, of course, that's not right. But I do think we've gone a, a bit too far in the other direction. You can't even take a pen from a vendor or something now. But um, I do think there has to be a real collaboration between clinicians because there's a lot of smart engineers in industry, but they don't have the clinical aspect that goes along with.
with trying to make things practical at the bedside. So I think that, you know, for something like ECMO, which is a small still kind of a niche area, you're never going to get anywhere unless clinicians and industry are allowed uh, to cooperate uh, together. And you have to be transparent, you know, about how you're working together and, you know, make sure that you're not breaking stark laws and that kind of stuff. But um, I do think that that is a very necessary part of moving this field forward. And industry really relishes clinicians' involvement in helping them. Uh, they're not just out there to sell devices. They actually do want to make things better, uh, at least most of the uh, industry folks that I've worked with. Uh, are interested in really advancing the field and making patient care, making patient care better. In terms of what is going to be the future of all of that, um, you know, I think uh, you can't do this without funding. And one of the things that plagues uh, what is still considered a small consumer base, customer base, like ECMO for industry is if we put all this money into developing these things and then it only gets used by this percent of the population, it's too expensive for them. And that has held uh, industry involvement in ECMO and related things like you know cannulas and that kind of business back in a lot of ways. And so you have to have funding. So where does the funding come from? Well, if it comes from the NIH or something, there are a lot of restrictions that go along with that, but certainly uh, you know, NHLBI, small business grants and that sort of thing are available to help advance this uh, type of field. The other sort of government thing that has gotten um, not in the way potentially, but caused a lot of consternation recently is that trying to get these devices through the FDA is often very difficult and very expensive. And so that's why in Europe, for instance, and in other portions of the world, there are many more devices that you can use that we can't get here in the United States because the companies over there do not want to go through what they perceive as the hassle of getting it through the FDA for what they assume may not be the largest uh, market. And if you can market a cardiopulmonary bypass pump, you know, to a million people and you can uh, market an ECMO pump to a thousand people, you know, there's not a lot of incentive there. Uh, for industry. And one of the problems that has come around recently, which I'm sure everybody's aware about, is this whole idea of supply chain stuff. So with COVID, you know, there were a lot of supply chain issues, getting this, getting that. And then more recently, you know, the, the FDA recall uh, of, of Gettinga pro products, you know, the Quadrox, which many of us use for oxygen meters, uh, as well as the HLS sets, which are used for um, cardio help, although you can still get those, you just have to go through some rigmarole, you know, really has highlighted the fact that A, there aren't enough devices that are approved out there. If you go to the FDA website and you read that recall notice, they have a link to other things that you can go and look at. And there are two things on that link. Uh, one is, I forget if it's leap, it's one oxygenator and then another oxygenator, which is over 50 years old and to my knowledge has never been used clinically. And that's the only things that are on that list, you know, and for those of us in the field, you know, we know there's Fresenius, there's Levanova, there's uh, Terumo, there's a bunch of different things, but uh, they aren't on their website. So the FDA process for getting things approved 
even though we understand the FDA has you know, a job to do and we want to make sure our products are safe, uh, has really held back uh, some of the um, advancement, I think, and the ability to get these things actually to market. Yeah, I think that's something that not just ECMO, but I think the whole field of pediatrics has all of these niches that struggle when the demand is much lower than in the adult population. So thank you for your perspective on that. Um, we kind of want to switch gears a little bit and maybe something more optimistic because some of this has been a little pessimistic. Um, in your time and in your career in ECMO, what do you feel like has been the biggest achievements what are you most proud of that you've helped witness, foster, bring along in the field so that people can kind of have a more 30,000 foot view of the field? So I think if you look at where we were 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, uh, it's amazing to me how much ECMO has grown in acceptance for different patient populations, you know, uh, and how long we are willing to run it. When I was a, you know, a resident, uh, there was a sort of unwritten rule that anybody that had any type of uh, coagulopathy or might be at risk for bleeding because you had to heparinize them or whatever was not a candidate. And that because of complications that often develop related to the circuit, we could run for two weeks and no longer. And that was it. You know, and then we would turn people off. So the fact that there are stories out there, realistic stories now, uh, of lung recovery occurring, which we never thought could happen except in kids up until the age of like six or so, um, that we can see that now happening. And patients are successfully uh, placed on ECMO even for up to a year or something, and they get off and they have adequate lung function and they're able to survive. And then the number of patient populations now and the spread to adults who used to you know, think ECMO was ridiculous, uh, has really driven the field. And certainly, you know, I think back in the old days, you know, pediatrics and neonates were the fields that you talked about and the adults sort of ignored ECMO. And now it's almost gone in the opposite direction. You know, most of the adult world is growing in its ECMO use while the neonatal and the pediatric world have stayed relatively stable, maybe a little bit of growth, but not a whole lot as new things have come along. So I think you know, the fact that we're able to offer ECMO to populations, cancer patients, uh, transplant patients, we're able to bridge people to transplant. That used to be a misnomer too. You couldn't bridge anybody to a transplant because it wouldn't last that long. You know, I wrote a case report recently with a student of mine about a guy that we had who had, you know, a cardiac arrest and then he came in and he, you know, got a balloon pump, then he got ECMO. Then he had a stroke and we had to give him a craniectomy on ECMO and all of this other stuff. And he walked out of the hospital. So, you know, 15 years ago, that would never have happened. And I think there are many, many stories like that now that are out there uh, in the world. And it's really helped to uh, advance the field so that we're willing to push the envelope for these patients. And then certainly ECPR, cardiac arrest ECMO is the hot thing these days. Um, and, you know, whether that takes on a life of its own and become sort of standard of care, I think is, you know, great on one hand and scary on the other, because how are you going to handle all those patients? But I do think it's interesting, at least that we're looking at it. And I think those types of things actually not only make ECMO better, but they make our medical care better. Start looking at CPR, maybe start doing CPR better, and they don't need 
ECMO, but whatever, um, if it's there, uh, it can be helpful as well. Yeah, absolutely. That actually reminds me of when I was training, you know, it was controversial to put somebody who was septic on until that article from Australia came out saying that you could actually have good outcomes on sepsis. And I remember learning that people used to think that whatever the bacteria or fungus was, it would just coat the circuit and therefore you'd never be able to survive an ec on ECMO even with sepsis. And then trauma patients, like you talked about craniectomy, I think people used to think that it wasn't worth putting those patients on because they obviously had traumatic injury. And that's been proven that people can actually have really good outcomes. And then when it comes to eCPR, I, I always think about the teams in France that actually have ambulances where they actually do eCPR out in the field. So all of those I think are super exciting and just give us the perspective that no matter what's happening in our day-to-day, -day, we should always have hope that the future is bright and that we have come quite a long way in the field. We're going to interrupt this episode at this time to thank the sponsor of this episode, Phoenix Children's Hospital. Phoenix Children's is consistently named among the nation's best by U.S. News and World Report and is committed to team-based care, bringing wide-ranging expertise together to meet the unique needs of each patient. With teamwork as its foundation, Phoenix Children's has led the way in the Southwest region, being the first in Arizona and among the first in the nation to offer several advanced cardiovascular procedures. These include the cone reconstruction for children with Epstein's anomaly, the implantation of the Harmony transcatheter pulmonary valve, and the use of CardioMEMS heart failure system to monitor children at home while they await a transplant. Thank you again, Phoenix Children's, for sponsoring this episode. You know, for somebody that has been here for quite a while now, and I have gray hair, which hopefully you can't see, but just remarkable how much the field is, you know, blowing up. And actually, the other byproduct of ECMO-related stuff is that there are now other devices that are coming down the market that I think are going to be really useful. Um, so probably the most futuristic one that I think is close to potential clinical trials that uh, involves uh, kids is the artificial placenta or the artificial womb. You know, I mean, it is getting pretty close to clinical trials. And if you figure that most premature infants die because of, you know, lack of uh, lung volume and surfactant and those types of things, the ability to put patients, uh, even, you know, uh, premature babies through their umbilical vessels on some type of a device that allows gas exchange until they're able to do it on their own is really, you know, sounds like something from Star Trek, but really I think we're going to see it probably uh, in our lifetime. And for those who haven't been able to attend an ECMO conference where that was presented, where are the leading centers that are doing this work? And what is the current state of that work? Is it currently still all being done in LAMS? Uh, well, I think it is still in LAMS, although the last I heard, the two big centers that are sort of rushing to get this out first are CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, and Alan Flake is the guy there, uh, and then University of Michigan uh, with, with George Malaska, who are also, uh, they're doing it sort of in two different ways. One has a pump, one doesn't, I think. Uh, but they predict in the next five years that it will be ready for clinical trials. And if you've ever seen this presented at ECMO, I mean, most of us that talk about this end with a slide that shows the NICU of the future, 
with all these babies in like this artificial womb thing. It's it's pretty futuristic uh, looking, but truthfully, I don't think that it is, um, you know, pie in the sky anymore. And if you look at uh, miniaturized things, I mean, you know, I think eventually um, ECMO will be miniaturized to the point where maybe it's like, you know, implantable, like the artificial lung or whatever that is going to be coming around. Uh, too. And then as technology and servo regulation and, you know, machine learning and all that stuff gets better, I think you're going to see that it moves out of the ICU environment uh, into, you know, a less costly and less resource uh, area and hopefully maybe even at home, you know, so instead of like, you know, people having ECMO in the ICU, uh, they'll be home, they'll be remotely monitored in some fashion, just like we do, for instance, for hypoplast for their saturations or whatever. Uh, and you can uh, watch them from afar and say, oh, it looks like maybe you you need your flow turned up or your flow turned down, or maybe you need to come in and we need to change your oxygenator. I think all those things are really not that far away from being reality. And just to clarify on that point, you, you envision that at some point with all of this telemedicine and monitoring capabilities, that someone could actually be at home on ECMO do you ever see a fully implanted device similar to VADS, like ventricular assist devices? Uh, I think so, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that part is a little bit out of my engineering skills to think about. But, um, you know, think of all the things that have come about. I mean, yes, VADS, Impellas, but even things like insulin pumps now. Who would have thought we had that, you know, a few years back? Uh, you know, and those things are all able to be servo-regulated and all that business. And even if you have to wear them externally, like, you know, like a console or a, a vest or something like that, that has the components in it, you know, I do think that that is, um, that's true. And certainly a couple of the uh, companies out there, out there, you know, Breathe, you haven't seen in the clinical realm yet, but is a um, new device that Aviomed has that is uh, the design is supposed to be that you can get people up walking. It has an oxygen concentrator in it and all that stuff. You know, those types of things are continuing to advance. And I think that, uh, you know, you're going to see a lot of uh, changes and even changes that will affect uh, pediatrics who often, you know, can sort of get left in the dust because it's harder to make devices for them because A, they're small and B, the market share is less. But I think those state devices are coming along as well. You know, we were talking uh, a little minute ago about patients who would have been refused ECMO in the past. So uh, one uh, patient that comes to mind is a, a trauma patient that we had at uh, Nova, actually. He was like 17, I think. Uh, you know, was driving in a car, got into a horrible car wreck. Everybody else in the car died except him. Uh, and he came into the ER with, you know, multiple, multiple injuries, but he was able to give you a thumbs up that he was at least alive in there. And uh, we, uh, you know, intubated him and stuff, and he was requiring like peeps of 20 and 100% oxygen, and we still couldn't oxygenate him. He was bleeding, he had an open abdomen, he had multiple fractures, he had to go emergently was going to have to go emergently to the OR to figure out why is abdominal uh, bleeding we couldn't get under control. So uh, we went ahead and put him on VV ECMO actually in the ER, which we don't normally do, but we did, and then took him to uh, interventional radiology where it was found that he had a splenic artery, 
rupture, had to have that embolized. He had to have an open abdomen because his bowel was uh, disrupted and he had to have you know part of his bowel removed and his abdomen left open. And then he had all these different fractures. He had horrible pulmonary contusions. And then uh, actually in the course of imaging, we also found out that he had an aortic dissection, which thank God we didn't put him on VA ECMO. Uh, so we had to take him to the cath lab the next morning, I think, uh, and have a uh, pant leg stent placed uh, in his aortic dissection under ECMO, which we've never done before either. Everything went fine. Um, he was off anticoagulation, obviously, for days and days and days and had abdominal washouts done and eventually got his um, uh, abdomen closed and he made it off ECMO and we th thought things were really great, right? I mean, he had every team in the world working on him just about, uh, but he made it uh, quite well. And then just to show you how, you know, when ECMO was over, you still need to watch the patients because we sent him back to the trauma ICU, which is not where we did ECMO. And there he deteriorated after he had some other abdominal surgery. And we didn't really hear much about it until someone said, hey, you know, that kid is on 100% oxygen, not doing very well. And so we talked to our trauma friends and they're like, oh, well, you, you would never put him back on ECMO, would you? We were like, yes, we would put him back on ECMO. So we put him back on Vino Venus ECMO for like another week until he got over his uh, issues and he got weaned off and is home now eating pizza and came back to visit us a few months ago. So those are the kind of things that, you can see these days um, that you certainly wouldn't have seen before. And I think it also meant, uh, also highlights the fact that you don't need always to keep people on anticoagulation. You know, he was off for days. Uh, and uh, the guy that I mentioned that had the craniectomy, he was off, off anticoagulation for days as well. And we just ran his flows, you know, fairly high, like three or four liters to keep things from clotting. But those are some other things I think <clears throat> that, um, you know, people often don't, don't think about. But even in kids, if you look at the literature, uh, there have been uh, multiple, multiple, multiple episodes of kids, not all of whom are off anticoagulation for bleeding, but for risk of bleeding, uh, who haven't received anticoagulation. And so uh, I'm right now looking at, at that uh, type of population, as well as looking at different types of anticoagulation, whether you use a direct thrombin inhibitor or heparin and seeing if any of that makes any difference in terms of need for blood products or outcomes. Wow, that's a really amazing case. And congrats to you and your team on getting that guy through. It sounds like you guys had to do a lot and to actually put him back on is a testament to the, the team's resilience and commitment to him as a patient. I think one of the things that you, you and I have talked about recently is people's definition of futility. And I think sometimes when you're in a, the middle of a case and it does seem futile to some people who have never seen someone like him survive, I think it is important for people to hear stories about the ones that, despite all odds, with a great team behind him, that person was able to survive. And I think societies like ELSO and PCICS hopefully will provide a network in addition that will have those resources as well. One more thing. So just to talk about ELSO for a second, obviously ELSO has been, you know, instrumental 
in providing us data on patients, which has also helped drive the field forward. You know, so of the, you know, several hundred thousand patients now that are in there, it is very nice that you can go and look at, oh, you know, this patient had X or Y and he survived. Uh, and the, you know, the chat boards and the ability to interact with other clinicians is very, very helpful. Um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, advancing the field, networking, keeping folks together, doing education, et cetera. So thanks again, Heidi, for joining us. I just want to make sure that there's nothing else you'd like to add before we end the podcast. Uh, you know, one area that I really didn't touch on, which obviously is a major issue now and is expected to continue into the future, is the whole idea of staffing. So certainly during COVID and even now, uh, one of the restrictions to the use of ECMO is not having enough staff, not having enough beds, and not having enough equipment. And how we handle that uh, problem, I think, will be uh, important both for now and the future. If you're doing staffing, you know, uh, you know, in Europe and in other places, actually, they often use a one caregiver model where the bedside nurse takes care of the pump and such as well. Here in the States, most centers still use a uh, two-person thing where there is a bedside nurse that takes care of the patient-related things and then an ECMO specialist or in some cases a perfusionist that uh, sits by the ECMO circuit or handles the technical aspects of the ECMO circuit. And those can be done with in-house folks. And then there are other companies that provide actually outsourced uh, provision of support uh, for ECMO similar to you know what traveling nurses do or whatever. Uh, and those types of models, I think, um, have been the mainstay of how we staff ECMO. But with the staffing shortages in nursing and other areas of medicine that are expected to continue, uh, what we're going to do in the future, I think, is really uh, going to be you know, interesting and somewhat, I think, dependent on where we go with machine learning and servo regulation and making these devices easier to use so that potentially you certainly won't have to have anybody sitting there uh, just uh, watching the device necessarily uh, that can relieve staff to do other things. And if you uh, actually can get into the uh, remote monitoring business of these devices and the patient and that sort of thing, I think that may take some of the burden off of staffing uh, as well. So two follow-up questions to that. One is, have you seen that one provider model in Europe done on pediatric patients as well as adults? And then my second question was about the future that you imagine. So you could actually imagine that AI and machine learning is going to get so sophisticated that the values that are normally reported to a provider would in fact go to AI who would then tell you what to change or how to troubleshoot the circuit. Yes. So in answer to your first question, yes, I have seen the one caregiver model uh, in pediatric patients in, in places outside the United States. And there may be places in the United States that do that now uh, as well. And I haven't necessarily uh, you know, seen anything that says that uh, outcomes from that are any worse than any other model. But I think it all depends on what your system is, uh, you know, is set up as and what your staffing ratios are, how complex your patients are, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of um, the uh, second question, which I'm forgetting. 
the future and AI being the yeah. So AI, yeah, I, I have to agree with you know the rest of the world, the computer geeks and stuff. That really, this is the wave of the future. And already, if you think about it, there are some systems out there, uh, you know, Spectrum, Talus, other uh, vendors like that that can actually give you minute to minute details, not only on the ECMO pump, but potentially on other devices as well, stream them to a dashboard where you can watch minute to minute and actually, you can actually change things, you know, adjust the pump speed, that sort of thing uh, by uh, uh, using uh, those type of um, often app based uh, uh, ways to monitor the circuit and actually change things, even when you're not at the bedside for what good or bad that may be. So I think, you know, the future is extremely, you know, bright really for uh, the whole field of extracorporeal support, not just ECMO, but I do think these issues of, you know, supply chain and new devices coming from, you know, companies, you know, we have, you know, Abbott, Abiomed, uh, Levanova, Fresenius, Terumo, there are other uh, companies outside the United States that are also uh, developing and marketing uh, ECMO systems. And I think we just need to uh, be on the forefront of what is out there because I do think the supply chain issue uh, is something that may continue into the future. And I think the days when a center could be completely dependent on one particular vendor, which obviously makes it simpler for training and such, um, maybe that isn't the best way to go because as we've We've learned from this recent uh, Gettinga Quadrox uh, recall, this is really problematic because many of us, that's, that's what we use. And so I think, you know, being able to diversify your portfolio of what you can offer uh, may be something that centers really look more into uh, in the future as they try to support more and more patients uh, with this great technology. Well, that's quite a perspective on the global economy and macroeconomics and the supply chain, because I think, as you said, it doesn't just apply to ECMO. Obviously, it applies to a broader worldview where I think a lot of industries are thinking about how to create more redundancy in the supply chains because of what happened during the pandemic. I can add one more thing about that, which is something else I've heard recently is, you know, uh, you have to be careful when you're cutting contracts for these things, because for instance, right now, everybody's scrambling to get new equipment. And some of the other equipment makers outside Gettinga are saying, oh, okay, well, if we're going to ramp up and build all these different kinds of oxygenators or pumps or whatever, uh, then you're going to have to sign a contract for using X number of these per year at potentially an amplified cost or whatever. And I think, you know, uh, clinicians do need to weigh in on some of this stuff because, you know, obviously industry is in it not only to provide care, but to make money. And I do think as clinicians and all those involved in the field, we do have a right to sort of look at what's going on in the marketplace and make comments known about what we, um, you know, expect. If a vendor is going to charge you three times the normal price because you really need something right now. Uh, you know, how fair is that? And if they ask you to sign a year contract when you only want six months, you know, I mean, there are a lot of issues uh, that are coming around now in areas that we really never thought we had to deal with before. And I don't expect that that's going to go away quickly. 
Those are those are some great comments about things that people I think dealing with the business aspect of ECMO definitely need to consider as they build up their programs. Um, we just wanted to thank you again, Heidi, for speaking with PCICS today about ECMO and everything that you have experienced in your career and how you've been able to advance the field forward with all of your contributions. We've enjoyed having you on the podcast. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.